That can mean only one thing. We are back. And back in the saddle again. The crowd favorite, Mr. Bob Brennan. Bob's back in the saddle for a follow-up interview with us today, ladies and gentlemen. Now, just so you know, I didn't uh, select that musical intro. Bob actually recommended that. So, yeah, there's a reason I selected that. Uh, some of you may have heard an earlier podcast I did with Jason on my um, journey to a lung transplant. Um, I got to describe what it was like, the emotions and everything. But the only thing is it was all told from a past perspective. Well, yeah. I mean, there was no other way to tell it, right? At By the time point, I started no. this podcast, you had already gone in, had the double lung transplant, and survived for like five years. Well, here's the downside. Um, now, this was explained to me before my transplant, but there was a chance that the medications they put me on to prevent rejection might do damage to other organs. Well, two weeks ago, I was given the diagnosis that my liver is deteriorating rapidly. And most likely, I'm going to need a liver transplant within the next two months. Dang. So, Bob, you use this podcast as an opportunity to reach as many people as possible to announce, I'm guessing for the first time publicly, that you are in liver failure. Yes. Now, what's the actual diagnosis since it was clearly brought on by the medications that were meant to save you? Okay, so what I have are called ascites. Okay. And that is a medical term that means there's hardening of different parts of my liver. Now, most people know that the liver can regenerate up to a certain amount. Okay. The problem is with the medications I have and my original health diagnosis back in, when I was two years old, uh, these things have been doing damage to my liver faster than it's able to regenerate. Wow. Um, and what happened about two weeks ago, I ended up in the hospital and they discovered that fluid is leaking out of my liver into that sac that holds all our organs together within the body. And this liquid pressure is putting pressure on all my organs. They told me what happens is it starts to physically move your organs in your body. And this fluid is coming from inside the liver. So basically, it was explained to me like plumbing. Let's say that the plumbing's not hooked up well and there's nowhere for the water to go. Sometimes it back flushes and starts leaking out the pipes. That's essentially what's happening. With these hard spots on the liver, the fluid that comes through the body in a normal way can't get in the liver and it has nowhere to go. So it's the equivalent of the, you know, the, the water spraying up from the faucet while you're trying to fix it. Wow. So, so Bob, how did you know this? Is this something that's been causing you problems for a little while or when did you first notice that there's something going on? Well, at first I had some GI problems and I thought that was, you know, that traditionally I've had problems with it uh, because my original diagnosis of cystic fibrosis, that's always a problem because it deals with the pancreas. Um, and I didn't think anything of it. This wasn't anything new. But for some reason, I think the real kicker was I started to gain weight and I couldn't figure out why. Now, I'm an older gentleman, so I thought, well, maybe it's just the metabolism slowing down and starting to gain weight. But I would eat less and less and still I would go up in weight and I couldn't understand it. Mm. Anyway, I ended up in the hospital because I broke my toe, my big toe, and I was having them look at it. And just before they released me, I asked the ER doctor, I was like, can you just take a, you know, an x-ray of my guts and see if there's anything going on down there? And uh, he said, sure, why not? So he comes back all of a sudden, he's got this worried look on his face. All right, so we're transferring you over to the main hospital on 17th Street. You know, they have the facilities there. They're going to tell us when they have an open room or getting an ambulance. I'm like, whoa, what, what, what's going on? And they told me they thought it was liver failure, but they weren't sure. Mm. So I got shipped over to New Hanover Regional Medical Center. And the next morning, they started 
with a bunch of um, experiments. Um, they did an MRI and they found all the extra fluid in my body. And I can't remember the, what the name of the procedure is, but they basically <laughs> punctured your side. They put a tube in there and then they hook it up to a, what I call the medical <laughs> wet vac and just sucked out three liters of fluid. Wow. So there's your 10 pounds, I guess. Yeah. Because it's it's not just water weight. It's extra fluid. They said it's all kind of proteins and stuff. And I made So bile or not necessarily bile? No, no, it's protein. Oh. It's, it's it's not digestive fluid. It's Oh yeah, it hasn't been digested. It no. hasn't made it through the filtration system. No. This is uh this is athlete grade like electrolytes. Well what I was saying is I said some carnivore really missed out on a meal because he he would have had enough to feed him for the week. Um, yeah, yeah, I bet. And then three liters. I was thinking about that. You go to the store, they have yeah. soda in two liter bottles. So yeah. picture a one two liter bottle and another two liter bottle half full. Half full and, Coming out of your side. Yeah. And then they just slap a band-aid on it and boom. Jeez. I just got up and walked around after that. It was no big deal. But um I could feel the pressure relieved on my organs. Like the breathing in particular, it felt like a child was sitting on my chest and all of a sudden he got off my chest. And I think what happened is the fluid, you know, uh, accumulation was so slow that I never noticed it. Yeah. There wasn't enough was, of a change from day to day to make a difference. Right. At was, least, at least a perceptual difference. Did you, um, can you speak to how long it took? To get those three liters, or do they know? Not long. It took maybe 20 minutes. I mean, how long did it take for oh, those to accumulate on your... They have no idea. Okay. But right now, you know, I, I left the hospital two weeks ago. Sure. Right now, I've already gained... I was 177 when I got out of the hospital. I was 184 today. Oh, wow. So, so in two weeks, I've gained... Seven pounds, something like that. Yeah. So possibly... In three weeks, you're taught, or two and a half weeks, that may, you may be full of that fluid again. And I might need another procedure. In fact, mm -hmm. I emailed Duke this morning to ask him what they thought. Mm -hmm. um, they said I could get it done in Wilmington and not have to go up to Duke. So that's, okay. that's good. But um, now I'm nervous. Well, of course. So now what is the uh, long term plan? I mean, is there a way to rectify this surgically or with medications? Well, this is one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast this time around. Um, I, I want this to be in real time. Sure. I know as much as you know. Okay. So when you ask me questions, there's going to be a lot of questions like, I don't know. Right. Because you said you're going back to Duke on the 23rd. Yes. On the 23rd of October, I'm going back to Duke to talk to them about a plan. Are they going to try and do something with medicine? Are they going to go line me up for the transplant. Is it possible for me to get a Whoa, transplant? transplant. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about a possible second transplant yes. on another organ. Yes. A liver. Yep. So it's almost like you're in liver failure. You have cirrhosis of the liver almost. I'm, that's what, yeah, it is cirrhosis of the liver, but not from alcohol. Wow. That raises an interesting question. If you were to be put back on a list, mm -hmm. I'm assuming if, if, surgeons recommended this and you could get back on a list you'd be competing against people who have damaged their own livers throughout life yeah but then again if you think about it from my lungs it was the same situation yeah the smokers or right. whatever because or or people that um you know worked in buildings with asbestos mm -hmm. or you know whatever um mesothelioma right it wasn't their fault that was circumstance but then yes then there's the opposite side the people that smoked their whole life so that becomes a great philosophical issue yeah it does you know should we grade them out equally should they have the equal chances you know what are the factors involved is that a factor involved in choice when i go up in two weeks i'm You'll gonna find ask out. them I'm so gonna you're gonna them. flat ask sure how do you get moved up or down on this liver transplant list? Well, I know part of it is blood type. 
Okay. Obviously, and that's nothing you can change. Right. Time. Um, I'm wondering if because because this this had occurred to me because mine situation was not self-inflicted does that make a difference in determining my spot on the chart i don't know yeah good point so i'm gonna ask and i mean what's the worst they could say and we're not gonna tell you you know but i figure a i want to know and b i figure anybody listening would want to know if that's a thing yeah you know i don't know you know, in graduate school, I remember one of my professors talking about iatrogenic disorders, and I thought they were just being, you know, esoteric unnecessarily, using words that you could have just easily said caused by the, the doctor. Right. And I didn't quite understand what iatrogenic meant, this idea that it's the doctor or the medical establishment itself that made you ill. But now I think I'm getting it. It wasn't like they meant to make you ill, but at the same time, it was the treatment, right? Mostly, that is has put you in this situation with your liver. And first of all, they did tell me up front, right? Right, you knew this you was know, a possibility. So that's it's not like I didn't know this could happen, right? So that's explained. Also, you know, especially from my perspective, if it's the choice of dying right now, sure, or dying in six years. You'll take the six years. Right. You'll take the six years, even if it means that the drugs that you're taking are going to ruin another organ. So, you know, I think, and this is the funny part, not really, but um, ethics kind of goes out the window sometimes when you have your life on the line. What do you mean? Like philosophical, like should I be ranked ahead of someone who drank themselves into that condition? You know, at this point, it's me. (laughs) Yeah. I think I should be moved to the top of the list because... I don't want to die. Sure. Never mind the fact that you've already gotten one transplant and bought yourself five years. Right. You have already convinced, I guess, Duke University to take this investment in you. But, I mean, at the same time, you could make the case, look, it was a pretty good investment, right? I've already padded you guys' numbers. I mean, you're pushing six years now? Yeah, it'll be six years in December. And the, the chance of making it six years, I'm guessing, was lower than 50%. Yes. If you did everything right. They said the the median age for survival five five, five year survival was fifty percent. Right, right. So fifty so percent of people who get this lung transplant, this double lung transplant from Duke, at least, will be dead before will be dead before their fifth anniversary. Yep. And you've made it almost six. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I mean, I think I might I might use that as part of my argument. Well, I would argue it because it's say obviously I I know how to live within my limitations. Sure. You know, I follow the rules and. I've taken care of myself, so I, I feel like I've proved I can handle the responsibility right. of a transplant because I'm still here. Hmm. So what are you feeling? I mean, obviously, you haven't had a whole lot of time to think about it, but I'm guessing it's taken you back to kind of where you were when you first learned the news that you needed a double lung. It, You know, it's interesting because when we did that first podcast, Yeah. I had forgotten a lot of things, but just today I was talking to somebody and a lot of that came back today. Now that, you know how human memory is. Like yeah. We don't really Sometimes you need a, an, an anchor point or a reference point, some context. Right. Or you don't want to remember something. So right. So maybe you just purposely kind of forget. There's some motivated forgetting going on. Yeah. Particularly with respect to emotions and pain. Right. So now I'm back to the same thing. Like, obviously the number one thing is... Will I qualify? Again, this is presupposing that you even right, right, have to right. have one. And if you do have to have one, if if it, it's imperative that you get it right away, right? Like, we don't right. know anything about it. I remember in the last podcast, you also said at the point with, at which you went to Duke, uh, before you got your um, double lung transplant, the physician you talked with was like, look, it's it's weeks Days, perhaps not months and years. You got to have he said one. Two weeks. Two weeks, right? Yeah. So now we don't we don't know if if you've got the same kind of situation. Well, it, it's funny. I laugh out of anxiety, I guess. No, no, no. It, it's there's actually a funny part to this. So when I went up to do two weeks ago, now um, <laughs> I was talking to the liver person, and she said. Um, 
Because obviously when you get told this kind of information, they're talking about the possibility of a transplant. Sure. Your number one question is, how long do I have? Right. You know, how long do I have? And she said, I'll ne- I won't forget this part. She said, well, we have an algorithm here that I could use to tell you the likelihood that you're going to die in the next 30 days. And I go, 30 days? What? And she goes, well, she's just going to punch some data in a phone and tell you what the yeah. chance. Yeah. Oh, my God. So what'd you say? So first, she, you know, when I exclaimed like that, she said, well, I, I don't have to run it. But then there's that sick little part in the back of your head where you're like, if I can know, maybe I should know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> should I stop off at the butcher store and get the best steak they have? Because, yeah. you know, so um, she starts punching the numbers in. Right. And I'm sitting there and nail biting. And then she goes, oh, what? And I'm like, oh, what? Because naturally my brain is like. You got till next Tuesday at 11 o'clock, you know? Yeah. And uh, she goes, oh, no, no, I just can't use this algorithm because you already have kidney damage. Oh, my gosh. I know, I know. I was like. (laughs) Oh, man. So it was was kind of funny if you have that certain sense of humor. But it's like, oh, what? (laughs) That's never a good sound from a doctor. So look, I know that you've been uh, planning your retirement, yeah. Not just from teaching, but from life. I think we all plan it to some extent, um, but I imagine you've been planning it a little more seriously ever since you got this double lung transplant. Yeah. I know you'd shared some things that you were gonna try to tick off your bucket list before you uh, exited the earth. Does this put a little more uh, motivation under you to tick some of those bucket list items off? And if so, what are some of those? Well, it's interesting because um, I have jumped out of a plane. Voluntarily. With the parachute. With the parachute, yeah. okay. Um, that was after the, the transplant because, you know, that had always been on my bucket list, so I took that chance. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a couple other things that I want to take a shot at and see what happens. So are you suggesting that you might be up for jumping out again? Uh, I think so. And that would be before a surgery or after? Well, I figure if I do it after, I'm going to have to let all the insides seal Right, up so it might take a while. That might take like a year. Okay. So if I'm going to jump, it should probably be... I look at it this way, and from a, from a good conscience point of view, if I'm going to get killed falling out of a plane, isn't it better to do it before you get the donation <laughs> liver? Good point. <laughs> you know... Get rid of it afterwards, you know. So, so how many, the place you go, how many people jump when you jump? Oh, I went to a place in, on Oak Island, and uh, last time I went, it was with uh, my girlfriend's mom and me. So just two of you in the plane? Yeah. Okay. I'm wondering how many can do it, That because uh, I was thinking maybe we would um, do like a little raffle off the spots to have people come out and jump with you, some of our listeners. That would be fun. Yeah. It's terrifying, man. It's terrifying. But uh, that'd be kind of cool if we could get some people who are invested in your story maybe to come out and uh, book their uh, their jumps as well. That would be fun. I remember, though, I landed and they kept saying, how do you feel? How do you feel? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we went back to um, Donna's house, and I swear, whatever problems you have in your life, they go away for at least 12 hours. Because you oh, after are, you jump. Yeah, because you're so thrilled. You <laughs> still be alive. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm being dead serious. Yeah. It, it's, you know, I, I don't do illegal drugs, but it was like being stoned. We just sat there like, wow, squirrels. Aren't they amazing creatures? <laughs> and this is on no pain medicine, ladies and gentlemen. This was... Uh, no, no, this was just... This was no, long this, after you had uh, oh, yeah, this gotten was your a couple transplant. Years. Yeah. yeah, a couple of years. But, um, no, it was just amazing. It just, so yeah, it was fun. It was fun. But, um, I don't know. I'm nervous. Well, of course. I'm nervous. I think it'd be strange if you weren't. Now, I know you, you had some people that you reached out to or that reached out to you when you were thinking about going through with this double lung transplant. Right. So you could sort of hear someone else's take, hear from some others that had gone through this before you. Have you thought about doing this with a possible liver transplant? Do you want to know? Do you feel like 
hey, it's probably not going to be that much different. I already kind of know the ropes. Or do you feel like you need to to learn more about the liver transplant and what that's going to entail and what um, recovery is going to look like? It's, it's interesting because I had talked to my cousin, my first cousin about this, and she said she knows uh, a woman in Kentucky mm-hmm. who had a liver transplant. And she was going to get back to me and tell me, you know, like recovery, how hard was it? How difficult was the special diets? Like what's going on? Yeah. yeah. So, um, also I have, uh, uh, a couple friend of mine. They used to live in the same cul-de-sac. Um, and her name is Evelyn and his name is Joe. And Evelyn had had, um, a heart transplant. Oh, wow. Uh, a few years before mine. So, that was one of the couples I talked to before mine, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she's in a similar situation as me right now. Right now, the drugs that she's taken have put her into kidney failure. And she's on dialysis. And they're waiting on a list to get the kidneys. Now, she needs two. And, and, well, actually, you only need one. Well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, if you have a donor that could donate and it matches, then she could probably get it quicker. Well, yeah, that's what they're trying to work out. But <clears throat> the fact that they're going through a second transplant, yeah, you know, just like I'm getting ready to go to a second transplant. So it's kind of nice because I just talked to Joe the other night about, you know, the feelings, the emotions, the, you know, the red tape and everything. And I, I will say that's one of the things that I've been really lucky in, in both these situations is that... Um, I've had people to talk to, which is why when people come up to me and ask, I am more than willing to share, especially if they know somebody or they themselves are thinking about it. You know, it's one of the reasons we're doing these podcasts to basically give an opportunity to people who don't know anything, you know, and say, oh, my little cousin turns out that she needs a kidney transplant or something like that. Here, listen to this, and maybe you'll learn some stuff. You'll right. get some pointers. You'll get some information. Um, but, yeah, that's why we started this, and I would like to continue doing this as long as possible. And that's why we're doing the, you know, as it, we go. Yeah, in real time. time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for those who don't know, um, and for those who haven't listened, uh, you should definitely check out the about an hour and a half, wouldn't you say, Bob, podcast we did couple of months ago, Bob was kind enough to come in the studio and just kind of share his life story, which included, you know, his his uh, congenital disease, cystic fibrosis, as well as the eventual um, need to get a double lung transplant, which occurred New Year's, again, almost six years ago. And um, that story has been very well received. How, how well received? Well, to put it in perspective for you, I've released, or Nelson and I have released about 20 podcast episodes, about 16 full-length episodes, a few little breadcrumbs, trailers, but 16 hour-long, thereabout shows. There's only two shows that have more downloads than Bob's uh, cystic fibrosis and double lung transplant story, and those are the first two we did to start the podcast back in May. So Bob's got basically the same number of downloads, um, for his story as we do for something that was produced first and months and months prior to his. So it is a really good story, riveting, captivating, um, to say the least, but also somewhat funny, uh, I would say. Uh, That is kind of part and parcel to Bob's personality if you don't know him. Um, And if you do know him, then you won't be surprised that (laughs) there's some sarcasm and some comedy uh, interlaced Some dark, throughout, throughout dark the story. <laughs> well, I know as a history professor, he has to be somewhat what of a good storyteller else. He wouldn't be able to command the audience that he has for the past nearly 30 years. And um, I know that people that know him, people that have been influenced by him, either in or out of the classroom, are definitely interested in following Bob's story. And I know they'll be um, glad to hear from you but I'm sure they'll also be quite worried about you, Bob. Um, I think we all are concerned. And um, if anyone would like to reach out to Bob, you know, feel free to shoot him an email if you have his email address. I'm not going to give it out on the air, but 
Uh, also keep in mind that we do have a put them on the couch at gmail.com and I can make sure I forward any emails that, that you guys send me on to Bob. That's put P U T M E M on O N D T H E C O U C H couch at gmail.com. And I can make sure that those emails get forwarded to Bob. Uh, one of the other things that I wanted to mention, you know, after we did the first one, some people got in contact with me, including a friend of mine named Amelia. Okay. And she said, one of the questions that she had was, how does it feel to be waiting on the list? Now, I'm not on the list yet, so, but I am nervous. I am nervous about getting on the list. I'm nervous about receiving one. Even if you put on the list, there's no guarantee that you're going to get what you need before time runs right, out. Right, no guarantee it's going to match up. Or, or like I said, or that you, you know, that one will come open. Yeah, that's so, a good point. Um, I'm worried about that. You know, I'm, I'm worried that, you know, for some reason they might decide or some medical reason might decide that I can't get it. And then I'm going to go from talking to you guys to not talking anymore. Um, so, yeah, that's one of my number one fears right now. Mm-hmm. Now I got to spend the next two weeks waiting to find out if I even have a chance. Now, all the while, you're still working, staying busy, yeah. keeping your mind distracted as possible, right? Well, it's interesting because my department chair asked me if I wanted time off. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I would rather be in the classroom because when I'm talking about history yeah. in my class, I can actually forget what I'm worried about. Yeah. You know, whether I'm talking about the, you know, fall of the Western Roman Empire or mm-hmm. I'm talking about the colonial battles and the Revolutionary War, I get so caught up in what I'm talking about. That kind of real life just fades away, right? Yeah. You know, it, it's it's like you, you get to, and I remember hearing the story one time that a guy would come home from work and, you know, when he'd stop outside his house and he'd go through this motion where he was pretending to hang something on a tree. Mm-hmm. And then he would go inside, and finally his neighbor asked him one day, what are you doing? He said, I'm taking all the worries and cares that I have and hanging them on a tree. I'll pick them up tomorrow on my way back to work, but now I'm home with my family. Yeah, I don't want to take a man with you. So, you know, that's kind of what I do with these, these classes. So, I mean, otherwise, what am I going to do? Sit at home and go, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Yeah. So it actually helps me to be teaching, you know, to to break my mind. Right. That. Versus just ruminating about something you don't yeah. really have all the details about anyway. Or, or any control over. No. No. Yeah. So it's a way to forget momentarily. It's it's a little mini mental vacation, I like to call it. Hmm. Now, have you done anything nice for yourself that you don't normally do? Oh, I bought some stuff on Etsy and, you know, that kind of thing. Like, you know what? That looks nice. I'm going to buy it. Well, I have to say, knowing that you wanted to come in today, it inspired me to go out and drop about $400 on a new microphone. <laughs> I'm not sure if my voice is going to sound three or $400 better, but I just pulled the trigger. I told my wife on my way uh, out of work today, I said, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go buy a new microphone. Bob's story has inspired me. I don't want to wait any longer. I've been talking about getting a new mic for at least six months, so it's time to pull the trigger. And she said, yeah, whatever you need, just make sure you keep working. Well, you know, I I think this illustrates a point, which two weeks ago, I didn't know this was happening. Good point. And all of a sudden, whammo. It's not quite the equivalent to being hit by a bus, but metaphorically it is. Sure. You know, I thought I knew what I had to deal with. I thought I knew the you know, accommodations I had to make. And all of a sudden, come barreling around the corner, you know, is this new problem that just, bam, I got blanks on it. Right. I mean, you you kind of expect it's going to be the lungs or it's going to be something associated with the lungs that gives you the trouble, right? Or right, yeah. or your diabetes. I mean, for those that don't know, you, you also, um, I don't want to say contracted, but you developed type 2 diabetes at some point, right? 42. I was 42 years mm-hmm. old. And that was... I assume basically related to your disease as well. Yes, because a lot <clears throat> of your insulin comes out of the pancreas. So, yeah. yeah. The they say the fortunate thing is that I made it to forty two before it happened. And so, with respect to your pancreas, that's still going pretty well, right? With the help of some insulin. 
insulin and I take enzymes to mm -hmm. digest my food. But, yeah. Um, keep your fingers crossed. Well, I was going to say, you know, as far as organs go, um, my assumption is that the liver is, it's important, but it's not, it's one that can be transplanted. They've got a pretty good success rate transplanting livers, from my understanding. Not so much with transplanting a pancreas. Oh, no. And you know? it's funny because for most people that don't even know where a pancreas is, <clears throat> that controls a lot. If yeah. that gets messed up, it's over. You're dead. Yeah. Yeah, I've had some relatives die of pancreatic cancer, and it's by the time you get diagnosed, when there's symptoms, it's already too late. Yeah. It was funny because I was joking around because that's my gallow sense of humor. I was thinking, one more, one more organ transplant after this, and I'm just going to have my own Netflix series. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's interesting. You said back um, during the first episode that the intake specialist or someone in finance asked you if there was anything else they could do for you. And you're like, what do you mean? And tell that story again, Bob, for those that didn't hear the first episode. And by the way, you guys really, if you haven't already listened, you've got to go back and listen to Bob's story um, uh, leading up to his double lung transplant. It's, it's, it's really good stuff. I have to tell you the, all right. So obviously money is a big deal. Sure. You know, so we were meeting with the finance department. It was me, my girlfriend, my brother. And we're in there and we're talking to the guy. And he said, well, how many organs do you need? And <laughs> I hope only one. Right. And I'm thinking, well, I need the lungs. And he said, and this is for all you careful shoppers out there. Yeah. Um, he said, well, you buy one, you get them all. Oh. And I was like, what? Yeah, that's the BOGO. It's not even BOGO. It's a BOGA. Yeah, Bogo. Yeah, all of them. And he said, "Well, if you need a, a, a lungs, you could also get a kidney and a liver and a pancreas, all for the same price." And so now you're thinking, "Man, maybe I should have taken him up on that and gotten the, uh, yeah, the liver last time." Should have gotten the jump on that. But now I got to pay again. I'm gonna have to ask him. Do we want to look at the kidneys while we're here? Yeah. And do you get a do you get a discount, a frequent flyer discount? Hell, I'm just happy with the buy one get one. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I just thought it was funny. I was like, are you, are you serious? Cause I thought they would like hoard that stuff like gold, but no, I, I guess once they lift the hood up, everything, goes. everything goes. Yeah. It's not even like an auto shop, you know, you have to pay per piece of equipment that gets replaced. No, for the human body. Eh. Well, I'm assuming since you've taken to the airwaves and you're talking to my audience of a couple hundred, then this must mean you've already told some of your closest friends and loved ones. Um, yeah. Speaking of, of which, I was thinking about your brother. You know, you, you, you shared a lot about your brother in the last episode. And he was a, a big part, I guess, of getting you through that, that whole process, letting you, oh, I guess, definitely, definitely. move there and supporting you. Have you talked to him uh, about, hey, man, we might have to do it again? Or Yeah, yeah, I already told him. Like, he was my go-to person yeah you know like listen this is what's got to happen i called him first on my way out of the office visit with uh the liver people i told him say so, uh do you, do you, have you gotten any paid time off <laughs> accumulated again well the funny thing is and I, I may have mentioned this on the last one but when we were growing up we fought like demons yeah i mean we fought all the time and i remember my one uncle said you know someday yeah. You guys are going to be the best of friends. And that was the one thing we did agree on because we both looked at him like he was insane. <laughs> like, <laughs> sure, we're going to be friends. I want to stab him through the heart. Um, but now we are the best of friends. And yeah. we actually lived together for six months. I didn't think we'd make three days. Hadn't done that probably in 40 years. Haven't done that ever. Yeah, ever. other than being kids. Well, well and but now, let me rephrase that. Lived we, alone, we lived just you and him. Together, yeah. and we didn't kill each other. Yeah. I mean, I think he has terrible taste in music. But yeah, that's but, but other than that, no fist fights, no, maybe no, a couple no, arguments no. here and there. No. But, um, yeah, he was, uh, he was my guardian angel. He sat there in the room with me in the hospital. Like, he would not leave. Yeah. And, um, yeah, he took care of me, whatever yeah. needed. If I need to be picked up and carried, if... I need to be carried to the bathroom if I need, you know, anything. He like, was there. He I, I guess that means mom and dad did something right. 
you know, they could have just uh, stopped with you, I guess. Well, they were Catholic, so no, they couldn't. Oh, okay. um, but the irony is, I, I think in a sense, mom and dad did something right in that my brother and I realized that the world, including mom and dad, is a cold, cruel, vicious place. Yeah. And the only person that we know we can trust is the other one. Mm-hmm. Because my brother has an absolute insistence on the truth. And people would lie to him. Even if they had good intentions, they'd lie to him. But I was the only person that would, own, would ever tell him the truth. Because, <laughs> because if that's what he values... Great, that's and, easy enough to do. And if you value him, then... You'll tell him the truth. Tell him the truth. And I don't see anything wrong with that. No. You know? No. So... But, yeah, so he already knows where... He's going to go with me. I got to go into another week after that. I got to go and get another procedure done where I'm going to be knocked out for the day. And he's going to have to drive me to Duke and, you know, take care of me on the way home. So. And you've let your students know, I assume, that you're uh, dealing with some of this or do they know anything yet? Well, that's the the one thing. You know, I was a very private guy Mm -hmm. up until... um, my lung transplant. And you were one of the few people that I worked with that I told the story sure. to about me. But otherwise, I kept most of that hidden. Mm-hmm. But then as a consequence of having to raise money for the lung transplant. Well, I, in fairness, you didn't try to raise money. I think I started blabbing it to people that I knew would take the lead. Uh, again, my uh, yeah. our friend and, and my co-host, Nelson Bowyer, um, in he, particular, took the lead and yeah. just you know, went off and, and started raising money. And he's asked me more than once this week whether or not we need to go ahead and get started. And I said, look, I don't I don't know that we should do it until Bob gives us the uh, the all clear. I said, we don't really know, I don't know what, what the if anything, right yeah, yeah, we don't know if or what Bob's going to need, but you better believe that if, if it's just money that can, again, save your life again. I can't believe we're back here, but talk about being back in the saddle again. If yeah. it's just money... I think that's that's the easy part. We can, we can take care of the easy part. Myself, Nelson, uh, your your friend group, your support group. Hopefully, many of these people listening, we can make that happen. You just got to go and figure out what is it that you need and what the and, next steps. Are. Yeah, what are the next steps exactly? I want to go back to something you said about uh, my students. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've been a private guy up until then, but this time around, I told my students exactly what's happening. Okay. I wrote them an email saying I wasn't going to be in class and why. And then when I came to class, came back to school, I told them what was happening. Mm-hmm. No punches pulled, everything. You know, I told them what was going on. And I've been so pleasantly surprised. They are mature. They're responsible. They express sympathy. Um, All the stuff we said that Generation Z and millennials couldn't do, right? Right. And... Yeah, like um, this ring that I, I have. Yeah, I noticed you got it. Ladies and gentlemen, for the audience, uh, I'll try to describe it. it. It From a distance, I noticed he had this ring on his left uh, hand. looked like it might have even been on his um, wedding finger. And I, he kind of asked me, what does it look like from a distance? And I said, it looks like a gold wedding band or something. And why don't you tell the audience uh, what it is, what it represents? What, what it is, because my students know I'm a nerd. Um it's Sauron's ring from the Lord of the Rings. This is a reproduction from the film. And this kid was wearing it. And then he took it off and gave it to me at the end of class. And he said, here, hopefully the power in this ring will help you. Nice. And I said, at this point, I'll, I'll take anybody's help. <laughs> yeah. But it was just. The, nice thought. Nice gesture, isn't it? Yeah, they're little gestures, but. You know, they text me every once in a while or they email me like, are you okay? Do you need anything? You know, Um, so I've been pleasantly surprised because, you know, I think sometimes teachers and students have an unnecessarily adversarial, you know, uh, interaction. When it seems our motives don't necessarily align, right? Right. And but when it comes to the human fact. Oh, yeah. Life or death, man. I think we're in perfect alignment. So the fact that they're worried about last time, I had students that donated money to my GoFundMe. Oh, yeah. They were at the fun drives that we put on and 
Yeah. They were constantly coming up to us in the office asking for updates. Right. They wanted to be filled in when we would update you on face, uh, Facebook and other social media sites. I had more friend requests from former students um, during that time than probably ever before. And they, they've been, they've all been amazing, really, if you think about it. So um, I just, that's been a pleasant, a pleasant aspect. Now, I prefer not to have to do this at all, but that is a pleasant aspect to, to see people expressing concern and care. Because I know I'm not always the nicest of guys. Yeah, I mean, you got to give assignments and give back grades that... No, I, I mean in general. Oh. I can be a jerk. I know that, but I think... I don't think you've ever been a jerk to your students. Oh, not to my students. No, no. To you, maybe. Yeah. But... No, you, I don't think you've ever been adversarial to your students. That's no, something that no. I think the audience should know. Bob is has always been a cut above the, the rest when it comes to his interaction with his students. Uh, in fact, he's, you know, confided a lot in me over the years and one of the things that he loves to talk to me about is his evaluation process. It doesn't matter who his department chair, his boss is. He always comes in and, and talks about how the evaluation went. And, you know, it wouldn't matter if Bob received a, you know, poor score on the entire evaluation minus one section. Let's say the evaluation has five parts. One part of the evaluation is the only one he's ever expressed any interest in you know, talking about, and that's the teaching evaluation. He's like, look, I may not be the best colleague. I may not promote, you know, I may not go to all of the extracurricular activities, but one thing is for sure. I pride myself on being the absolute best teacher I can be. And so if you give him anything less than a perfect score on teaching, he's going to be really upset with you. He'll take a low score overall. He'll be the first to admit, hey, I might not get my um, paperwork, paperwork in on time. I might not return that email to the boss. I might, right? It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really pay, pay the bills during the pandemic. It kind of sucks because, I mean, that's who we are. That's what we've trained to do our entire lives well, is I'm, to I'm tell from, stories. I'm from the chalkboard and chalk it generation. Well, yeah, and you didn't even have chalk and talk it during the pandemic. No, no. Talk about having to trust your students' maturity. Yeah. But, um, no, I mean, I, I like my job. And, again, like I said, that's one of the reasons why I'm continuing to teach, even with these health issues, because it helps me. Yeah. It helps me. Yeah. Well, at a time when you can't get people to come to work anymore because perhaps these years being at home working through Zoom has made us a little bit lazy, uh, Bob is one of those that I can tell you for certain Loves being in the classroom, loves telling the story, loves engaging students in history, um, loves talking shop about history with his colleagues. I mean, this guy, when he's given an opportunity in the past to teach online classes, which, let's, let's face it, would give you a break from having to be in class all these hours every day. Bob was one of the only ones in the department for years that said, nah, I, I'll... Just give me one of those. I don't need two or three of them. I'd prefer to be in the classroom teaching. I'd prefer to be in there telling stories. Well, it's funny. You know how a lot of people can't start their day without their coffee? Yeah. That's what's like. There are days when I am in a bad mood when I get to work. Sure. You know, I got bills to pay. My dog is sick. I'm sick, you know. And then I'll get in front of the classroom, and we'll just hit a topic, and then suddenly... I am You're in flow. Jogging down the road, just saying things, pulling stuff in from over here. And I end up, after teaching my classes in the day, I'm in a much better mood than I was when I got to work. Of course. And I always figured out that that's how I knew I was in the right job. Mm -hmm. Because if you feel better after you go to work than before you went to work. Something's right. Yeah. And I, I've always realized I was and if we could just out. bring the pay up so that it'd be com commensurate with the effort we put in and the pleasure we feel from teaching we'd be all set oh yeah I mean this would be the perfect job of course I guess you could argue that if you're having a good time on your job it's not really work anyway at least that's what my grandpa used to tell me I when I used to tell him I wanted a job that you know it was easier that I wanted to get up in the morning I didn't even need a an alarm clock I'd just get up and go to it He's like, yeah, you're living in a fantasy world. You need to grow up. 
He said, uh, jobs aren't supposed to be easy or fun. If you can't get hurt or die on your job, it's not a job. It's not work. <laughs> I was like, wow. Wow. He's yeah. a happy man. Yeah, I, well, yeah. He had a lot of really bad jobs. And he just couldn't understand why I would ever even consider going into a field that would be interesting or fun. He used to say what my girlfriend did at the time was color. She was an artist. Oh, nice. As artists don't make any money. Let's no. ask, let's ask no. Rembrandt. Yeah, it's kind of funny. We, we disparage the people that don't make any money. You know, doctors, lawyers, we don't really disparage them so much. Well, I guess with lawyers, we call them ambulance chasers sometimes. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know that we have any crack names for doctors. I mean, even if we did, they'd be the ones laughing. Yeah, all the way to the golf course. Mm-hmm. Uh, what so else? what else? What's left? All right, so the plan. We got a plan. Yeah. So I'm going up to Duke. 23rd of October. We're going to figure out, did you want to tell them where I leave the key to my back door as well, or no? No, I'm not going to tell anyone that because I'm going to, I'm going to come over and get anything of any value before anyone else finds. Gotcha. And we, we do have to make sure that we have a strategy when it comes to like checking on you and your dog. Yeah. Not because we're worried about you or necessarily the dog. You can tell the, um, the story uh, about how you can be sure that your dog's going to be okay for a little while after you, you pass away, if you pass away by yourself. Well, sure. The funny thing is you and I were talking yesterday about, yeah. about will your dog eat you? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to necessarily bring that up today, but okay, yeah, while we're at it. I asked Bob if he'd ever heard of... Uh, There's an article you read. Yeah, I read him a little bit from an article about whether or not your dog is the type of breed that you might have to worry about eating you if you pass on. And it turns out that German Shepherds in particular <laughs> uh, do, in fact, like to eat their owners after their owners die, even if there's food left for them. They'll just kind of forego the, the dry dog food and go straight for the face. I guess kibble doesn't taste the same. No. So, so much for leaving that bag of dog food open that he was telling me about. Well, I thought that would buy me some time. Like, I'll just leave the big bag of dog food out and open. And, and it's out, it's open right now. Right. But he doesn't go in there and eat it. No. He just... No, he's not really hungry right now. No. So, but I was hoping that maybe, you know, in a day or two, people would notice I'm not showing up to work. Well, and they'll come to look for me. Well, just so the audience knows that we're not completely macabre and negative, <laughs> I, the article continued by saying that we don't really know why dogs will immediately start eating their owners, um, particularly in the face. And I said, well, maybe there's something positive in there. You know, there's a morsel of something, no pun intended. And the article went on to say, look, when a dog is nervous, say, from separation anxiety, they will lick you and lick you and lick you, obviously, wherever they can, can lick you, and preferably in the face. And sometimes licking it can get so aggressive that it kind of leads to nibbling or even biting. And then, of course, when a dog is in a biting frenzy, then what's the next the next thing? I mean, the next thing is, okay, get a little taste and swallow. So it could be that you make your dog so nervous if you die on them, and that nervousness goes first from licking to, yeah, just eating you. We might want to think about editing that. Yeah, we probably will edit that out. Um. But yeah. no, you're, you, uh, so, you've got some contingencies. You've got some dog food left open for your dog. You've got some neighbors that hopefully will knock on your door every now and then if they don't see you. Obviously, you've got some colleagues at school that expect you to be there at least once or twice a week, right? Well, my boss will find out if I stop going. Yeah. And then he knows where I live, so he can always come check on me. Um, my brother calls right now. Um, a friend of mine lives with me. Okay. So, obviously, I mean, it'd be horrible for her, but she'd come home and find me. Right. You know, but at least, I mean, as far as that, yes, I've got that contingency planned for. But right now, my next step is looking forward to the visit to Duke and see if I qualify, see if it's necessary, see if we can try some medical treatment first, see what the difficulties are in getting on the list, whether I qualify for the list. So, there's a lot of questions that I'm going to come away with hopefully a lot of answers um my next trip up to duke so right. that's that's one of people my fingers crossed because when i didn't know what was happening to me i was terrified sure but 
I felt better once we started diagnosing things because, okay, now that we're diagnosing things, it's like, all right, this is the path. We've, we've right. narrowed it down from it could be anything, anything to, to these things. we've got a specific field to target, right. and we can start making plans that way. I, I always feel better if there's a plan. Yeah, of course. So you have the little data points that you can get to and start drawing a picture, you know, and try and figure out what's going on. So I'm guessing end of October, 1st of November, you'll have some, some answers, good or bad. And I hope you come back and share what you've learned with the audience. Cause I know that they're, if they weren't already invested, they're definitely invested now. And uh, they're going to be curious. Well, like I said, we want to do this in real time. So when I get back from that meeting, We'll do this again. We'll do it again, and we'll bring you up to speed on the next step. All right, man. Well, I think uh, we're going to let you get out of here, get some rest. I know that probably um, probably due for some rest. For those of you at home that have been listening, I really appreciate your time. And I know Bob is happy to have your support. Again, if you want to reach out to him, feel free to email your questions or your concerns or just your well wishes to Put them, put em on the couch at gmail.com, and I'll forward those over to Bob. Those of you that have his email address, feel free to just reach out to him directly. That's all I have, and I'm going to let um, Aerosmith take us out again. <laughs>